on our bulletin here, you'll notice that we're not in the Gospel of John. I've been working slowly through the Gospel of John once a month, but uh, this morning we're going to uh, take a little, do a little pause, take a little detour, and we're going to look at Paul's epistle to the Ephesians specifically on the passage in which he addresses husbands in the church. So you can go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Our text this morning is going to be verses 25 to 33. And while you're turning there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to, since we're kind of parachuting in, in this letter, I'm gonna, I want to establish some of the context of this letter so we can kind of build our way up, see where, how Paul has built his way up towards this particular passage. And this is one of those sections of Scripture that will always, always be relevant, always be needed in the church because marriage is a, a central relationship in the, the life of a church, um, the marriage relationships. And it's an, an ongoing work. It is ongoing work. And it's something that, because of our own sin, uh, because of our own uh, folly, sometimes we, we don't do it so well. We don't relate uh, to our wife or our husband so well. And so I, I specifically wanted to look at Paul's addressing of the husbands because the husbands are the ones who really need to lead the way in cultivating a Christ-honoring relationship in their home. And as we can have Christ-honoring relationships in our home, that'll have a blessed impact on the body life of this church family, this household of God. So, Paul's purpose in writing to the Ephesians was to remind them of the glorious realities of their salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and how they were to live as a result for his glory. Here's the basic flow of Paul's instruction. So we're doing introduction now, and we'll get into the text. But the basic flow of his instruction through the letter, uh, leading up to the passage we're going to look at this morning, is this. In chapter 1, Paul explained that we who are in Christ have been blessed by God with every spiritual blessing. In Christ, we have... Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, a heavenly inheritance. In Christ, we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And then Paul goes on in chapter 2 to explain that before we were in Christ, that is before God graciously saved us and united us to his Son, we were all spiritually Dead, driven along by our carnal desires under the influence of Satan. Our minds were futile, our understanding was darkened, and our hearts were hardened. That was, that was us in our natural state before God graciously intervened, and that he did. Paul says that God saved us and made us alive in Christ, spiritually alive in Christ he graciously intervened and supernaturally changed us on the inside. We were born from above. And as Paul says in chapter 2, verse 10, we were created 
in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And when we get to the second half of the letter, we see Paul directing us by way of exhortation towards these good works in which we are to walk, so that we would indeed be walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, in a manner worthy of our salvation, in a manner worthy of Christ. What are these good works? So Paul explained that walking worthily means walking in unity, and this is in chapter 4. He says walking in unity, walking in righteousness and holiness, walking in love, walking as children of light, and walking as wise people, which results from understanding the Lord's will and being spirit-filled. You want to walk in wisdom, you want to walk as someone who is wise, the way to do that is to understand the Lord's will and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be led by him. That is, to yield to his influence in us by obeying the Lord's will for us. You want to be spirit-filled? You want the, the spirit to lead you? Then you need to yield to his influence in you by obeying the will of Christ for you. It is by obedience that the spirit leads us. Paul then turns his attention to the home, which is the sphere in which our personal lives are lived out. And he instructs us in the Lord's will so that we might yield to the Spirit's influence in this area. This is ground zero of your personal life, your home, and the relationships in your home. Paul first addresses the most intimate and influential relationship in the home, and that is the relationship between the husband and the wife. That is at the heart of the home. That is the central relationship in the home. As it goes, so goes the household. The marriage relationship is the heart of the home. And this morning, I want us to focus in, as I said, I want us to focus in on the word of exhortation that's given to the husbands, because he actually addresses the wives first, because he speaks of being spirit-filled results in submitting to one another. And that's one another in the body of Christ. So those who are under authority would submit to those who God has placed over them, uh, placed in authority over them. And those relationships, it would be wives have the husband placed over them. They are to submit children with their parents over them. They submit. And in the ancient households, you had the slave and master relationship providentially by God, authority. They submit. That is being spirit-filled. That's led by the Spirit. God is a God of order. He's a God of peace. And submission to authority is what we're called to do to him, and that's reflected in we can express that by submitting to those he's placed in authority over us in the household. So after he addresses wives, then he goes, and instead of going to children who are also under the authority of their parents, he says, but let me talk to you husbands. I've just mentioned to the wives, be submitting to your husbands, but now let me talk to you husbands. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. If we as a church are by the grace of God going to grow in love towards full maturity in Christ, then the men must lead the way. You men, we men must lead the way. And for the men who are married, which is many of us, many of us, we lead the way by obeying the Lord's will for how we are to relate to our wives. 
Godliness in marriage motivates godliness in the home, which in turn motivates godliness in the church. And all this is to the glory of God. So, I am speaking most directly, as Paul is, to the married men. But everyone is benefiting from this passage of Scripture because we want to have the mind of Christ in these things. And so for you who have yet to be married, this is God's design for the marriage relationship, that you might have a right understanding of it, and Lord willing, that you would be rightly prepared for it, entering into it one day. And for the rest of you who are, are married, this is speaking directly to your circumstances. So let's benefit from the Lord's wisdom in this area. So for you men who are married, whether you realize it or not, whether you like it or not, God says you're the head of the home. You are the head of your home. You are the divinely appointed leader. Your marriage, then, is a stewardship in which the Lord has placed the woman who is your wife, he's placed her under your physical and spiritual care. He has called you to relate to your wife in such a way that glorifies him. But marriage, you enter into marriage, you are the leader. That is God's design. And you have a stewardship to care for your wife physically and spiritually. And guess what? God has not left you to figure that out on your own as to how to do that. He's given you his instruction in the way that is good and pleasing in his sight. And he has given you the Holy Spirit so that you truly have, you truly have the power to walk in it. You have the ability to do this. Here is his word for you through the Apostle Paul. Let's read the text, 25, verses 25 through 33 of chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. All right, so in this passage... There's one command given by the Apostle Paul to Christian husbands. There's a lot of text. There's one command. Love your wives. He states it first in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. And then he restates it in verse 28. Husbands should love their wives. And then again in verse 33. Let each one of you love his wife. You think he's trying to make a point? He's trying to 
hit it home. Now, Paul had first given a word of exhortation, as I said, to the wise in verses 22 to 24, through which he made the point that the distinguishing mark of a spirit-filled wife is her submission to her husband's authority. Did you catch that? Our culture doesn't like that. And we've got to watch out lest we be conformed to the culture's thinking and not to the mind of Christ. But this is what Scripture says. A spirit-filled wife demonstrates her submission to Christ by her submission to her husband's authority. And Paul made that point in those verses. As Christ is the head of the church, and the, the church is to submit to his authority, this is how that relationship works, authority, under authority. Christ is that of the church. The church submits to Christ's authority. So a husband is the head of his wife, and the wife is to submit to his authority. Paul then turns his attention to the husbands and addresses them. And we see in verses 25 to 33 that while the primary command for the wives is that they are to be submitting themselves to their husbands, the primary command for husbands is that they be loving their wives, ongoing, right? Not love them in, in some moments, but you are to actively, proactively, continually love your wives. Continually, not momentarily, daily, not occasionally. That's the distinguishing mark of a spirit-filled husband. Husbands, this is God's greatest commandment for you as far as your home is concerned, to love your wives. Now, first of all, notice that Paul does not say, husbands, since you're in the position of authority, enforce this command of the Lord for your wives. Make sure they are not insubordinate. Right? He didn't follow up his address to the wives with that. It's like, make sure you keep them in line. Make sure you make them submit. Oh, he doesn't say that at all. Instead, he says, husbands, your primary responsibility as the head of your wife is to be loving her. Love is the distinguishing mark of biblical headship. Headship is a beautiful word, not a dirty word. It's not a bad thing. Because you see what God has said about it. You see the mind of Christ on the issue. He says, there is headship in marriage. And guess what the distinguishing mark of biblical headship is? It's love. All too often, though, our, our sin gets in the way. And we allow it to make us men who are in that role, we allow our sin to make us overbearing and abusive. Sin can do that. And we give ourselves to it. Or we allow it to make us give up and to become lazy and negligent husbands. I think that's, that seems to be more of the temptation now, maybe if you're watching television, those Lifetime movies, you know, rah, like they have a certain portrayal of these horrible husbands. But I think probably more common what you see is the negligent husband in our culture, at least, perhaps, or at least maybe in the church, the things we struggle with is lack of leadership. 
The good news is that with the Spirit's help, we can be transformed by the renewal of our minds as we understand the Lord's will for us here in his word. And with the Spirit's enablement, we can live as he called us to. It really goes against the flesh. So if you're trying to do it in the flesh, I'm going to be a good leader, I'm going to love my wife. That doesn't last long. Um, and it kind of doesn't come with the, the right motivations and everything. But give yourself to meditating on the word of God for you and ask the Lord for help in this because he has given you the ability to do it. The instruction to husbands that we have in the passage before us this morning is an application of the commandment that the Lord has given to all of his disciples, and that is what? That we love one another just as he loved us. And when it comes to marriage, the marriage relationship, well, the Lord's primary, primary commandment for those of us who are husbands is that we love our wives as Christ loved the church. Love goes beyond words. It goes beyond feelings. Love is action. We have a hard time remembering that. Love is action. And honestly, the, the feelings tend to follow. But if you're sitting around waiting for the feelings to be all there, you're going to be failing miserably because our feelings are just all over the place because we're a mess. But love is action. We're not called to love our wives in our own way. We're called to love our wives in the way that God has called us to, and that is with Christ-like love. Christ-like love. So what does Christ-like love look like in a marriage? What's required of the husband that he might display such love towards his wife and thus please and honor the Lord? Well, the Apostle Paul shows us in this passage, how about an outline? I usually don't do outlines. Three qualities. Three qualities of Christ-like love. You ready? It graciously sacrifices, verse 25. It patiently sanctifies, verses 26 through 27. And it affectionately sustains, verses 28 to 33. I'll state those again as we move along. In verse 25, then, we are shown the first quality of Christ-like love. It is a love that graciously sacrifices. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ is our perfect example for every area of life. We are to be imitators of him. Therefore, when it comes to marriage, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Jesus said to the disciples, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Such love is not a feeling. That kind of love is an act of the will. The command in verse 25 is for husbands to demonstrate the gracious love that selflessly gives for the benefit of the other. This love is to be given regardless of merit. 
Notice he didn't put conditions in here. Love her if, you know. He just says, love your wives. It is a, a gracious, selfless giving of yourself for the benefit of the other, and you do it regardless of merit. That's why it's gracious. That's why it's grace. It's not conditioned upon performance. And by the way, if we ever think that it should be, just remember then, how you doing, husband, is your performance make you worthy of your wife's submission? So we don't want to have unfair standards. She's called to submit. You're called to love regardless, right? You honor the Lord that way. No conditions. Christ-like love does not wait for the wife's submission and respect. So it's, it's not reactionary or responsive. It is proactive. It takes initiative. Remember when it was that Christ gave himself up for the church? Do you remember that? When did he give himself up? Was it after we began to love him and submit ourselves to him? And he's like, okay, now I'll come. And I'll make atonement for your sins. No. Right? Scripture says, while we were still sinners, rebels, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's Christ-like love. That's grace. And that's the kind of call, uh, love we're called to demonstrate towards one another and, and in the home, the husband towards the wife. So men, we are, we are to be loving our wives even when they are not loving us in return. And when there's conflict between us, we should follow the example of Christ and be the ones to initiate the process of reconciliation. Now granted, the husband and the wife both of us, should, we should be pursuing reconciliation. We should desire to initiate that, even if it's not initiated by the other. It doesn't matter. We need to be reconciled when we have conflict dividing us. But certainly, there's a following after the pattern of Christ, the husband should initiate, should initiate the process of reconciliation when there's conflict. After all, he's the head, right? He's the head. He is the leader, so he should lead by example. Therefore, husbands, you should, you should be the one who calls the family meeting. Hey, honey, let's, let's sit down and talk. Let's try to work through this. You got to initiate. That should be you. You should be the one who first confesses your own wrongdoing and contribution to the problem. Because, you know, every problem, there's two people involved. There's some degree of sharing in that conflict. I mean, hey, even if it's like, 90% her. If that's the math in your head, doesn't matter, right? Because reconciliation doesn't say, ah, based on my ledger here, you should probably initiate this one. You're more guilty than I am. You kind of started it. But then, you, you know, a lot of times when you actually start talking with each other, you realize, oh, so I did those things that kind of, uh, kind of offended you here, and that kind of didn't really work out so well. So I guess I'm to blame too, right? But husbands should lead the way, pursue reconciliation, the pursuing sacrificial love. Such Christ-like love that graciously sacrifices is not the world's kind of love. Clearly, we can see that. thought this was helpful. Uh, one commentator said this, the world's love is always object-oriented. A person is loved because of 
physical attractiveness, personality, wit, prestige, or some other positive characteristic. Such love is necessarily fickle. As soon as a person loses a positive characteristic or that characteristic is no longer appealing, the love based on the characteristic also disappears. It is because so many husbands and wives have only that kind of fickle love for each other that their marriages fall apart. And just think about it again. Um, God's love, the love of God, is not reactive, right? He's not, he's not looking to see, wow, they are so, they are so uh, lovable. I, I'm responding. They're so beautiful. There's so much good in these people, in us, that he, just, he wants to react and respond in love. That's not, that's not how it works. It's actually his love initiates despite our unworthiness, despite our sin, there's nothing desirable in us, in and of ourselves. And when he loves us, his love actually changes us. That's the love of God. That's the kind of love we're, we're called to demonstrate towards one another and in the home and all these relationships, and especially husbands in this context here. So a marriage will flourish and last when it is filled with the godly love that seeks to give rather than the worldly love that seeks to take. Right? Godly love seeks to give. Worldly love seeks to take. How will you serve me today? What can I get from you? The godly love says, how can I serve you? How can I honor God by doing that? By following after my master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verses 26 to 27, we are shown the second quality of Christ-like love, and it is a love that patiently sanctifies Patiently sanctifies. Verses 26 to 27, Paul writes this, that he might sanctify her in church. Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy, And without blemish, patiently sanctifies. Christ's sacrificial love for the church was purposeful and had an ultimate goal in view. And what was the ultimate goal? Sanctification. Make her holy so that he might present her to himself as a pure bride. The Greek word for washing in verse 26 refers to Total cleansing. Total cleansing. It's a washing of the entire body, and it is used figuratively here as a reference to the beginning of our sanctification. That is, when God gave us spiritual life and caused us to be born from above. We were cleansed and made holy. We were set apart. And we also know that that's a process, too, because we've been cleansed, and yet the reality of that won't be manifested fully until we enter glory and we're glorified. But it has been initiated in God causing us to be born from above. We're cleansed. We're made holy. Our sins are forgiven and washed away. And being justified through faith in Christ, we stand in the grace of God. And this cleansing came about through the word of God. 
the cleansing that we experienced in our salvation, it came through the word of God, which we heard and believed. Therefore, with that imagery, husbands, your love for your wife is not only to be sacrificial, it's also to be a love that has your wife's best interest in mind, which is what? Well, it's God's will for her. Her best interest is God's will for her. And what is that? It's her sanctification. Her sanctification. Whatever, whatever priorities you have or other priorities, they fall far down, fall short of that. The priority is her sanctification. That's God's will for her. Conformity to Christ-likeness. So, husbands ought to be loving their wives with a patient love that has her sanctification in view. Now, sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, you can't, there's not like some working, you're like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this much sanctifying of my spouse today or myself. Hey, it is a, it is a work of the Holy Spirit. And it, you yourself can't sanctify your wife, husbands. And it goes both ways, right? Hus- wives can't sanctify their husbands. So husbands, you can't sanctify your wife. You can't make her holy. It's like, I just want to make you holy. It's like, you can't make her do that. You can't make her holy. But guess what? You can be and are called to be a sanctifying influence in her life. There's a difference. You're called to be a sanctifying influence in her life. And how do you do that? By aligning yourself with the Lord's will and loving her as he has called you to. That's how you be a sanctifying influence. Make it your aim, then, to be a useful instrument in the Lord's hands as he does his good work of conforming her to his image. He's doing the work. But you want to be an instrument in his hands that's useful in accomplishing that work. You, you don't want to be one of those useless, broken instruments that's just sitting in the toolbox here. Ineffective, well, some rust on it. That's pretty much garbage, just lying around. Now, you want to be hanging up that tool I go to, and I'm using effectively to accomplish my work of sanctification, says the Lord. So you want to be a sanctifying influence in the uh, life of your wife by aligning yourself with the Lord's will and, and loving her as he's called you to. And if your wife is not a Christian, so here's the thing. I'm speaking to the kind of maybe the norm where we have, we're talking about a Christian married couple. We have two believers who are both born from above, have the spirit of God dwelling in them and are in Christ. But the reality is, is not all marriages have that dynamic. Sometimes you're unequally yoked. If your wife's not a Christian, well, then your love for her should be a testimony to the goodness and glory of Christ in order that, God willing, she might be one to Christ. So it's a witness. And then if she is in Christ, it's a sanctifying influence, your love for your wife. So husbands, if we, if we truly have our wife's best interests in mind then we will desire to see them grow in holiness. And if you don't have that desire, you don't really have her best interest in mind. The primary means through which we can help them toward this end is how? How do we help them grow in holiness? Here's how. Ministering the word of God to your wife. 
through reading, through instruction, through conversation, and through prayer. A husband is the spiritual leader of his home. I didn't say he ought to be the spiritual leader. That's not what the Word of God says. You should. It would be good if he did that. It's like, no, no, you are. As the husband, you are the spiritual leader of your home. And that means that you are either a good spiritual leader or a bad one. You are either a strong one or a weak one. You are either a faithful one or a negligent one. Do some soul searching right now. Which one are you? Which, what, have you settled into certain patterns in your marriage relationship that make you one or the other? But in either way, you are a spiritual leader. It's just what kind of spiritual leader are you? So husbands, it's, it's your responsibility to shepherd your wife. What did I say? It's her, your responsibility to what? Shepherd her? You know what that means? You are her primary pastor. The pastor of the home. Your wife's first and primary pastor is you, the husband. So don't neglect to love your wife with a sanctifying love. Don't neglect to minister the word of God to her. And like I said, reading, instruction, but also conversation. to speak in the word of God into her life and prayer. Don't neglect to have her best interest in mind, which is her sanctification. Don't neglect to encourage her in the things of God so that she might increase in faith and hope and love and grow in Christ-likeness. Are you pointing her to Christ? You're not only responsible for her physical care. You are also responsible for her soul care. And how often does that get neglected? The physical care... Well, we see that. Got to work. Got to get that paycheck. We got to get food on the table. Good. So everybody's eating. Got clothes. Good. Shelter. Got a house. Good. I'm providing. That's just half of what you're to provide. The other half is her soul care. So if you've dropped the ball in this area, well, just like in any area, just like with any issue of sin, faithlessness, well, what's the right response? Repentance. You can repent now and start taking steps towards becoming a better spiritual leader for your wife. Look to the Lord Jesus who cares for you. Take this matter to him in prayer and and he will help you obey his will in this area. He will. He will help you grow in godliness. He will help you grow into that role and glorify him and how you relate to your wife. Immerse yourself in his word so that by it he may transform you by the renewal of your mind and make you more like him. Look to the members of his body in the church who will help you and hold you accountable and build you up and spur you on towards obedience to the Lord in this area. How many of you have detached yourself from that means of grace? We meet on Sundays. We also assemble at other times. We symbol informally as well, meeting with one another. Do you know we need each other? The body of Christ. It's God's will that we don't just operate as islands out here. Well, I got my home life out here. I'm going to, okay, I hear what God says. I'm just going to try to make it work. But I don't want anybody to know that I'm struggling. You do yourself a disservice because God has given you so many resources through his people 
and the church to help you in that. But that requires humility, right? Transparency, fueled by a desire to truly honor the Lord. Finally, verses 28 through 33, and again, this is a larger section, but there's a basic point that's being made here. So it's not going to be super long or anything. We see in these verses the third quality of Christ-like love. It is a love that affectionately sustains. Let's read it. 28-33. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So here, Paul picks up the imagery he had actually introduced back in verse 33, where he was addressing the wives. There he said that the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And he added that the church is Christ's body. And when Paul says husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, it's assumed, and rightly so, that they they already love themselves. He says, love them as your own bodies. Love them as yourself. That's the assumption, right? You already love yourself. This is true of all of us. It's reflected in the fact that we all, to some extent, make the effort to, well, how do we love ourselves? Well, you feed yourself, don't you? You feed yourself, you clothe yourself, you clean yourself, you seek shelter, and so on. Plenty of self-love there. And we don't need to be told to love ourselves because we already do. What sin does then, because those things aren't bad. Those are actually, that's how God has designed things. We, We do seek to feed ourselves and clothe ourselves. But what sin does is it makes love of self all-encompassing so that we neglect to love God and our fellow man and thus violate God's two greatest commandments for us. That's where self-love is a sin. It's the excess. It's the all-encompassing focus on self to the exclusion of others, to the exclusion of God. But thankfully, God saves us from sin through faith in Christ, his son, so that we're delivered from the damnable darkness and misery of all-encompassing self-love. The scripture says that Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, who for their sake died and was raised. The scripture also says in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he's our perfect example of that. Paul says in the second half of verse 29 that he who loves his wife loves himself. So in the bonds of marriage, a man and a woman are united together as one flesh. And within such a union, a a husband blesses himself as he seeks to be a blessing to his wife by loving her, by caring for her, by leading her as the Lord has called him to. He actually brings blessing upon himself by doing the things that God's called him to and serving her in that way. And Paul makes this statement, or after he makes this statement, he he reasons in verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. 
Let's consider those two verbs, nourish and cherish. A basic definition of the verb nourish is to supply with food. In other words, that which is necessary for life, health, and growth. And of course, a husband should look after his wife's physical health, as we already said. But just as important is that he looks after her spiritual health. You don't just make sure she's physically fed. You want to make sure she's spiritually fed. That's nourishment. Husbands, don't, don't just work hard to make sure food is put on the table, but work hard to make sure spiritual food is put on the table. You must be feeding your wife spiritually. Then there's the verb cherish, which translates a Greek verb that literally means to make warm. Make warm. Which, let's face it, is helpful in and of itself because women are typically cold. (laughs) Some of you are probably like, wish I brought a jacket right now. But women are typically cold while men are not. I mean, we laugh because, I mean, the reality is it's true. It's actually uh, biologically true. Our anatomical differences, by God's design, makes women tend to be more cold. Did he have, what a a great, you know, way for for a husband and wife to cling to one another, right? She's cold, I'll warm you up. God built us this way, draws us to each other, right? Make warm. But hey, Paul's not just talking about physical warmth. Um, obviously, one of the regular acts of kindness we can show our wives is warming them up, literally. But this verb uh, that literally means to make warm can also be used in a figurative sense to mean tenderly care for and comfort. Hence the, the translation we have here, cherish, cherish, which suits the context. So let's consider the one other use of this word in the New Testament. Paul used it one other time. When he wrote to the church of the Thessalonians, he said, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother, taking care of, that's the word, taking care of her own children. Let that imagery sit with you. So husbands ought to be towards their wives. Cherish her. So husbands, the the message is your love towards your wife is to be tender and warm. Okay, tender and warm. Tender and warm. Remember that. Don't use your masculinity as an excuse to shirk your responsibility to love your wife in this way. You know, like tough guy kind of stuff. Tender and warm. Ah, The Lord says that's how you love her. That that's true manliness in marriage. Tender and warm love towards your wife. Sustain her spirit with warm affection. Think about that. What it does when you show her that kind of love. Nourish and cherish her just as Christ does the church. Sustain her with warm affection. Why does our Lord love us in this way? Well, and that's that section Paul explains in verses 30 through 32, right? We're members of his body. And then he references in Genesis, the Genesis reference. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold Fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he continues on. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Well, the term mystery refers to something previously undisclosed and unknown and, or unknowable to man, 
until God reveals it. So it's hidden. So, for example, we see actually in this letter in Ephesians, it was, there was a mystery that was the union of Jews and Gentiles in Christ was a mystery. It was not known beforehand and, until God revealed it through his apostles that this is the church, that Jew and Gentile are made one new man in the church. They're united together as they're united to Christ. That was a mystery revealed. And the mystery Paul is speaking of here is it's not marriage. Marriage isn't a, a mystery, nor is it the husband or wife becoming one flesh, although we see there is a spiritual reality, a spiritual union that happens in the marriage relationship. This kind of soul knitting, knitting our souls together. Um, and nor is it the meaning of Genesis 2.24. He didn't quote that verse and say, what? Verse just a total mystery. Rather, since Paul was, he was quoting that verse in Genesis, two becoming one flesh, to support what he said in verse 30, we are members of Christ's body. And since he immediately clarifies he's speaking with reference to Christ in the church, the mystery revealed is the divine marriage union of Christ and his church. It's that, that spiritual reality of Christ's people and him, what that union is like. It's like a, a divine marriage union. This reinforces Paul's main point that husbands are to show their wives the same kind of love that Christ shows the church. And Paul concludes by restating his exhortation to the husbands. And this is the point he's trying to get across. Verse 33, let each one of you love his wife as himself. What does that sound like? Does that sound familiar? That commandment? It's an application of the second greatest commandment. Jesus said the first and greatest commandment is to love God, but he also added, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So husband and wife are permanently joined together by God as one in marriage, which makes the husband's wife not only his closest and most intimate neighbor, but also an extension of himself. You are to love your wife then as yourself. Day in and day out, a husband is presented with opportunities to live out the second greatest commandment towards his wife. And this commandment is the chief expression of the first and greatest commandment that we love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mights. How do you know you love God with all your heart? It's by your love for others. It's on display how you treat others. And one of the primary ways a Christian husband demonstrates love for God is by loving his wife. So in conclusion, husbands, like I wasn't ready for such a heavy word, being having all the attention this morning. You're welcome. It's like a big marriage counseling session right now that we all might be edified, sharpened, spurred on to honor the Lord in this way. But husbands, your greatest earthly responsibility is to be loving your wives with what? Sacrificial, sanctifying, sustaining love. In fact, this is the kind of love that all Christians, all of us are called to demonstrate toward one another because it is Christ-like. It's Christ-like love. And we're to demonstrate that toward our neighbors as well. However, each day, your Christian walk begins and ends in the privacy of your home, does it not? That's ground zero of your Christian life. And the way you treat your wife, husbands, the one person with whom you have the most intimacy and the most interaction that is a major indicator of your level of spiritual maturity and wisdom. 
It is a major indicator of whether or not you are being filled with the Spirit, submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ and worshiping God. So remember the standard. Your love for your wife should reflect Christ's love for his church, which is his bride. Christ is your example to follow. So you have received this sacrificial, sanctifying, and sustaining love from Christ, have you not? And now you're called to pour out that same kind of love on your wife. And as the Spirit is working in your wife's heart, your love will not only encourage her to submit herself to you, but it will make it a joy for her to do so, right? So take the lead in this area. You've seen this is the mind of Christ. This is the will of the Lord. Embrace it. Trust it. You believe it. Come under it. Apply it. He's not left you without resource, right? His spirit, his word, his people, that we might be spurred on to do this for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your instruction that you've given us. And with the perfect example we have in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and the one whom we have been called to follow in his steps, to follow his example, that we might be conformed more and more into his likeness, who perfectly reflects your glory. May that glory increase in us as you do your work. Help us to have the desire, Lord. Give us the desire. Give us the, the, the motivation and, and, and also just the, the ability to humble ourselves before you and to brace your will for our lives in all these areas. To not let sin diminish or hinder the, the good work that you're planning to do in us and through us. May we put sin to death and pursue righteousness. Seek first your kingdom and righteousness. Amen.